please take your copies of God's holy and errant word in your hands. Turn it with me for the last time in this series, hopefully not, not the last time ever, but the last time in this series in the book of Jude, where today we will be studying verses 24 and 25, the last two verses of this book. So that's Jude 24 and 25. Before I read God's word, let us pray that by his spirit, through his grace and his love for us, that he would add his blessings to our time together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now, having coming to the end of, of going through the book, the letter of your servant Jude, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Father, he has been warning us about the, about the temptations, the snares that have been set by false teachers, both from without the church and within the church as well. Uh, Father, this is going to be a scary thing, but Father, let his closing words this morning be an encouragement to us, that though the task at hand might seem daunting, you are able to do far greater than we could ever expect. Father, write this truth upon our heart this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So here now the word of God. Jude, verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So I've been with the wedding last week. I've been thinking a lot about not just weddings, but marriage. Um, it is astonishing how different men and women are. They have different ideas, they have different wants, they have different desires, and yet we are called to love one another, to respect one another, and to cherish one another, not for a week, couple of years, before all of our lives, so death do us part. Well, if there's something that we're going to need to be able to do in order to do that, we need to be able to compromise with one another. We need to, we, like, not everything can be a, a hill to die on. Some of our preferences might have to be set aside. It's a lot of give and take within the covenant of marriage. Larry and I have made a few compromises in our relationship. One of the very first ones that we compromised on, uh, Hillary, on her bed, she had a beautiful quilt. Uh, she told me the brand of it the other day. I can't remember what it was, but apparently it's something special. She loves this quilt, but it was rough. I didn't really like it, but I have a comforter that I've been sleeping with since college. It's good and broken in. It's soft. It's got a few holes in it. It's not much to look at. And so we had to, we had to compromise. So we came to the compromise. We said, I could sleep under my comforter, but in the morning, the first thing, it goes under the bed so nobody can see it. And the quilt goes on top of it. So you never actually see it, but I get to sleep under it. That's a compromise. More recently, we had another compromise. We, our little family has outgrown my little Honda Civic. He said we needed a bigger vehicle. Hillary wanted a van. I wanted a SUV. So we had to compromise. She got her van. Now... 
I get to pretend like I don't mind being seen driving it. It's a compromise. But throughout this book, even though compromising is good on a lot of things, on preferences, things like that, when it comes to truth, and this is how Jude starts this little book, he says, contend for the faith that has been once and for all delivered to you. Contend for the faith. There's a reason why he doesn't tell us to compromise for the truth, to compromise for the faith. Because if you compromise what is unchangeable, you compromise what is immutable, you make it what it isn't. If you compromise truth, you make it false. If you compromise what is good, you make it evil. And that's not what we're called to do. We don't have the option to compromise truth. We don't have the option to compromise what we believe and what we confess. It is true and unchanging. Therefore, we must contend for the faith. We must contend for truth. Stand upon it. And don't let go of it. It changes you. You do not change it. Also, in Jude, he's been very straightforward with us. Warning us that though we are to contend for the faith, the world, even the church, sitting at our tables, are false teachers that have one goal in mind, to get you to compromise the truth. To tell you, you don't need to do all that stuff. All God wants you to do is be happy, and if obeying Him doesn't make you happy, then you, you just don't do it. Our world is full of snares and, and traps, pitfalls, and they're all baited with temptations that seem to contain a, a beauty or, or a joy that will only produce death like those waterless clouds. They promise one thing, but they give you something entirely different. He's sitting, he's giving us a picture here that's very daunting. We can look at we can look at this book and maybe we can get to the end of it and we're like, how do I respond to this? What is the result of this teaching? And we can maybe think we don't have these last two verses that maybe maybe the response to it is despair, anguish, to just run and kind of hide. But that's not what he does. What is the response of Jew to all the pitfalls that are in the Christian life? Two responses. Doxology, benediction. Our praise to God and his blessings to us. Worship. That is his response. Well, why is he responding like that? Let's, let's go through this together. Let's begin by looking at doxology. The meaning of doxology. What does it mean? It's a, it's a, common, it's a compounding of two Greek words, doxa and logos. It means literally glory words or words of praise, words of worship. We sing the doxology after after we give our tithes and our offerings. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Giving praise to God. This is how Jude begins this, this doxology there in verse 24. He says, now to him. Well, who is the him? Who are we singing the doxology to? Who are we giving praises to? He defines it in verse 25. The only God, no other, the only God, our only Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is who we are ascribing praise to. And what are we praising him for? This is a very important part here. 
the, the content of your praise, what you're offering up to him, is not something you're making up off the top of your head. It's not something that you're kind of grabbing out of the thin air. You're taking what God has revealed about himself in the word of God, and you're echoing it back to him. He speaks to us in his word, and then it echoes back off of us from our hearts with praise, telling God who he is. And what is the content of this doxology? To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. How much praise do we need to give God? How long do we do it? He gives us a time frame. Before all time, now, and forever. Before you were created. Before God spoke on day one and said, let there be light. There was one goal. His praise. That's why we're here. We are created to praise. In the here and now, what are we doing here? That's what I ask the children. Why are we here? To praise God. To do what we were meant to do from the beginning of creation. To offer up praise, to reflect back, and echo His glories back to Him. That's what we're doing now. How long will we be doing it? Forever. In 10 years, 10,000 years, 10 billion years, into eternity, praising, praising, praising God. The main point of Jesus' exology is this. All praise belongs to God alone because God alone is worthy of praise. The heart of the doxology is given to us there in verse 25 with that first word that he uses, glory. The Greek word there, as I mentioned before, is doxa. If you've been in our new members class, we were going to went over the doctrine of sola deo gloria, to glory to God, the glory be to God alone. You know what the word glory means. There's two senses in which you can define the word glory. You can define it in a, in a visible sense. Moses didn't hear about the glory of God. He saw the glory of God and his face shone forth. Isaiah saw the glory of God there in the throne room. He fell on his face and says, Woe is me, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. They saw his glory. But what exactly are they seeing? I, I love Herman Bobbing's definition of this. He says, The visible glory of God is the outward splendor of God's internal perfections. It's you seeing what should be invisible. But he's allowing you to see it. You're seeing his internal perfections. But then the word glory can be used in an active sense. We glorify God. God glorifies himself. We see this kind of working out in the Trinity. John 17 is a very important passage on this. Jesus says, The hour of my glorification is at hand. Therefore glorify your son with the glory that he had with you from the beginning. The Trinity glorifying itself, glorifying himself, and we glorifying him. Our active glorification of God is this. It is the response of God's people upon seeing, hearing of, and even reflecting upon the perfection of God, the character of God, the attributes of God. You see, the glue in both of these senses is holding all this together, that word perfection, the perfections of God, the character of God. 
we praise and glorify God because of who he is. Jude gives us three of God's innumerable perfections, but he gives us three of them. Majesty, dominion, and authority. Let's look at those three very briefly. First of all, God is majestic. The Greek word here is megaluse. That might sound like a bunch of you know gibberish to you, megaluse, but there's one part of it that I know you I know you recognize. Mega. What does mega mean? Big, huge, immense. God is immense. He fills all of time and he fills all of space. We think of God often as being, well, he's in heaven and I'm here. Jeremiah 23. Yahweh fills the heavens and the earth. He is inescapable. He is as much here in this room as he is in Pakistan, as he is in Italy, as he is on Mars, as he is on Andromeda. The entire universe and the heavenly realm are filled with God. That next word, dominion. Another way of of translating it and interpreting it is God's power to reign supremely. I'll think of that in relation to the word majesty. He fills all of earth. He fills all of heaven. Yet he has dominion. Wherever God is, there he has reign. And he is everywhere. Visible and invisible. Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, there you are also. There's no escaping God and there's no escaping his reign. Then finally, he has authority. I love Thayer's Greek Dictionary's definition of this word. It says, the power of him whose will and commands must be submitted to by others and obeyed. When you disobey God, when you break his laws, you're not doing it behind his back. You're breaking the laws of a sovereign king to his face. These three aspects of God make up the content of Jude's doxology, Jude's praise to God. And by looking at this, I think we can have, take from this as a way of application to test for our own praise and ask, is our praise true? Is our praise worthy of God? Two questions to ask. First question, does your praise describe who God actually is? Or does it merely describe who you wish him to be? Who you would like him to be? Your praise for God must be a reflection of his holy and good character. This should give us ample motivations to seek to be not just theologians, but good theologians. One of R.C. Sproul's last books before he died, the title of it was, Everyone's a Theologian. The only question is, are you a good one? We're all theologians. But are you good? What do you, what do you confess about God? Where do you get it from? It's from the Word of God? It's from the world? It's from your heart? Or did God reveal it to you? What is the source of it? It better be the Word of God. Theology matters because praise matters. And praise matters because that's what we were made for. 
the second test, our second question that we can ask ourselves is this. Do we ascribe all praise to God alone, or do we reserve some, even just a little, for ourselves, someone else, or something else? God alone fills all of space. God alone has dominion, power to reign supremely. God alone has sovereign authority. If that is the case, and that is what we're offering in praise, who else qualifies for it? I don't qualify for it. God alone qualifies for it. God alone is to be praised. God alone is worthy of praise. But you may be thinking, well, doesn't the Bible praise other people? Doesn't the Bible praise other things? Does the Bible not praise the beauty of creation or the reign of good kings? Or the righteous deeds of man. It sure does. It praises a lot of those things. But let me ask you a question. This is a great way of understanding when the Bible prays things outside of God. The Bible is always going to praise what is good. And nothing but what is good. Well, let me ask you a question. From where does good come from? What is the source of all good? I used to teach Old Testament. Well, 90% of it was an Old Testament class. When I got to the Ten Commandments, it would become an ethics class. And I would always begin the ethics part of it by asking a question. Does God do a thing because it is good? Or is a thing good because God does it? Now, that might seem just like a brain teaser, but it's actually a very important question for us. Because if God does a thing because it is good, what that means is, is that there's something apart from God, called the good, that God must submit himself to in order to be able to work. God wants to do something, he must look to the good and say, hmm, can I do that? That is not the testimony of Scripture. God himself is good. God himself is the great good. And all things that are good proceed from him and from him alone. This has a profound effect on how we live our lives and how we interact with other people. This means that whoever and whatever a Christian praises, it is always the expression of Christian doxology, a Christian's praise to God. I love my wife. I praise my wife. She is beautiful. She is kind. She is gentle. She is loving and all these things. But I don't want to praise her like a pagan would praise his wife. As if these things just emanated from just her. Yes, she is a sinner and the vision is marred. But when I see those good things in my wife, I am seeing a fragment of the perfection, of the beauty and the kindness and the mercies of God shining through his image bearer. And I give praise to him alone for what I, the glory that I have seen through my wife. And it's not just my wife and the relationships that we have. When I, I look into the heavens and I see the expanse, I see its immensity, I see a fragment of the majesty of God, and I worship Him. When I see the charity that people have for one another, just for example, the, the outpouring of support for the, 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 the Covenant community recovering from the, the tornadoes, 
Yes, I see their charity, but beyond it, I see a fragment of the benevolence of God, and I worship Him alone. When I see fellow Christians calling one another to repentance, urging them toward greater conformity into the image of Christ, urging them to cling to Him for their salvation and safekeeping, I see fragments of the mercies of God in the gospel, and I praise Him, and I praise Him alone. That is the doxology. It's not just when we sing it in church. We see it. We experience it in others. But we must understand that it comes from God alone. We don't just praise God whenever we feel a sense of appreciation for Him in the world, but also in what we do. Our work itself is an expression of doxology. I like how Luther puts it. He says, The Christian shoemaker glorifies God in his work, not by putting little crosses on his shoes, but by making good shoes and selling them at fair prices, because God is interested in fairness and good craftsmanship. He's interested in that. God is a God who isn't just beautiful, but he creates beauty. The gifts that you have are all instruments that God has given you so that you might play the sweet music of his praise throughout the work and all that you do. Christians enjoy the beauty of art because God is beautiful. We enjoy mathematics, science, logic, because God is a God of order, is a God of reason. So we praise God because we see his perfections, his glory in the world and in his people, and we praise him for it. But we praise him. We don't just praise him in what we do and what we see. We also praise him in every circumstance. Especially, take a note, underline that word. Especially in suffering. As hard and as painful as suffering might be, we praise God because in suffering, we see the fragments and taste the sweetest of all of God's glories. His glory of salvation through the suffering of His Son, Jesus Christ. Look with me again in verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you approach God in praise through any other mediator than the blood of Jesus Christ, then he will spew it from his mouth. You will be like Cain, offering up strange fire that is displeasing to God, and he will spew it from his mouth. He will despise it. In order for our praise to be true and lovely, it must come through the cross. Apart from Christ, God cannot be praised. For to praise him through any other means... Our self-worth, our self-righteousness, another prophet, another priest, another mediator is to seek to praise God while at the same time rejecting and spitting upon the most precious display of His glory, His only begotten Son hanging in shame. You might be thinking, that doesn't sound like glory. You must not have read the Gospel of John lately, have you? In the Gospel of John, Jesus is always speaking about the hour of his glorification. I just quoted John 17. Father, the hour of my glorification is at hand. What did you do right after that? He's betrayed. He's arrested. He's tried. He's beaten. He's 
crucified, but he dies. There's glory in that. We look at the transfiguration and amazement. James, John, Peter, seeing Jesus transfigured, seeing his glory displayed. We think, man, wouldn't that be awesome to see something like that? What about the centurion at the cross? He didn't see that. He didn't, he didn't see the transformation. He sees Jesus' limp, bleeding, battered body hanging there on the tree. And he says, truly this man was the son of God. That's the glory that he saw. He said, it must be him. This must be the guy. This must be the Son of God who I am seeing dying. But we're not like the centurion, are we? We were not there 2,000 years ago to witness the cross, but when we suffer, we sense the sweetness of Christ's suffering. I've been reading Luther on the cross here lately. I've read him a lot on the atonement and justification. I'm not reading on him and his kind of basically looking at the cross, the sufferings of Christ as being kind of a lens through which we see the world. Listen to what he says about this. It's incredible. He says, It is not sufficient for anyone and does him no good to recognize God in his glory and majesty unless he recognizes him first in the shame and humility of the cross. Without the cross, God's glory would be a horror. For why would you expect a God like that to love a thing like you? But you don't see the glory of God through the lenses of your own eyes, through the lenses of your own goodness and your own worth. You see the glory of God through the blood-stained lenses of the crucified Son of God. And it is only through that that the majesty, the dominion, and the authority of God could ever be seen, not just being a, a good thing, but an all-consuming, lovely thing. That only comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. What can we take away from all this? I think we can take away a pretty good definition of what it is to be a Christian. A Christian is one who senses the glory of God in everything and returns praise to God in everything that he says and in everything that he does because he has witnessed the glory of God not in the heavens, not through some vision, but through the good news of the Son of God suffering, bleeding, dying in agony, not just under nails, but under the wrath of God, so that we might be counted righteous in his sight. That is why we praise God. That is why we praise God in everything. That is how we can praise God in everything. But without that, nothing matters. Nothing counts. It's all detestable to God. We've all said nothing. I want to finish tonight with Jude's benediction. Jude has been praising God. If you look there in your Bibles above it, probably if you have an ESV, you have a little title, Doxology. But within that doxology, there in verse 24, there is a pronouncement of benediction. It might sound familiar to you. This is my, I take my benediction that I give to the church at the end of every service from verse 24. The word benediction, it literally means just, just good words. 
Words of, of blessing. But notice here in verse 24, the two benedictions, the two blessings that Jude pronounces upon the people of God. First, Christ promises that he is able to keep you from stumbling. All these benedictions, any blessing in the heavenly places comes by way of promise. What God is able to do, what Jesus is able to do, what the Spirit is able to do. Not you, but God. He who is able to keep you from stumbling. Blessings are fine and good. Do you bless one another? I love Irish blessings. May the trail rise to meet your feet. May the best of your past be the worst of your future. Those things are nice, but they're just well wishes. They don't actually do anything. So there's no power, there's no ability in them. But when God blesses you, power because he has the ability to see it through this idea of stumbling to keep you from stumbling this is a a keep you just stumbling into into sin one of these traps that jude has been warning you about you're walking through a minefield christ is able to keep you from stumbling into that now that doesn't mean that you're not going to stumble into sin it doesn't mean that you're just going to be perfect but it does mean that when you fall into the trap christ is able to rescue you from that trap. He is able to come to you, stoop down to you, and pick you back up out of the muck and mire that you've made for yourself. That is what he is able to do. But there's a problem here. Look up with me again in verse 21. Here, So in verse 24, he who is able, God who is able to keep you from stumbling. Well, what does he say in verse 21? Keep yourself in the love of God. Well, who's keeping who? Am I keeping myself? Or is God keeping me? Who is doing it? And this is a very important, it's a very deep part, but it is so important to understand. God alone will receive the glory for keeping us and for what we do. And he does not receive it by robbing us of glory. It's not like he sees us doing it and say, oh, nope, that's mine. No, no, no. What we produce belongs to him. God will receive the glory from our work because it is he who works through us. We are his instruments. He is wielding us and we are not wielding him. I'll give you an illustration. A few years ago, back when my wife and I were still living in Hattiesburg, she had a friend fly in from North Carolina uh, and flew into New Orleans. And we went down there and picked her up and she had never been to New Orleans. And so we walked around the French Quarter uh, for a good part of the day. We got to the end of the day, we were walking down this road, and we found this uh, little antique shop. Now, I'm not much into antiquing, but if you've ever been to New Orleans in July, it is the, it's like walking on the surface of the sun. And it had air conditioning, and that's all I cared about. So I, I, I duck into this little, um, this little antique store, and we're looking around, and it actually turned out to be quite amazing. But one of the first things that I see there, it's, um, it was a little ceramic uh, footbath. Um, I mean, nothing special at all. It was, I think it was like kind of a beige, off-white color, maybe about six, seven inches deep, maybe about a foot wide, a foot long, it had handles on the side. Like it, nothing at all special about it. Had no worth. But the price tag was like, I can't remember, it was like tens of thousands of dollars. And I'm like, who in the world? I, I wouldn't pay two dollars for this. If I, if I, dropped it and it broke, I wouldn't shed a tear about it. Why would anybody pay $20,000 for this thing? 
The footpath's worth did not come from itself, for in itself it was worthless. Left alone, it would be and remain worthless. Instead, its worth came from the one who made use of it, Napoleon Bonaparte. It was worth thousands of dollars because Napoleon, it was powerful, mighty, a lot of influence. He used it. Why is my work? Why does my work have worth? Why, does, why, why, why can I be told that I will keep myself in the love of God, have any worth whatsoever? It's because as I keep myself, it is not I who am keeping myself. It is God who is keeping me because he is able. I am his instrument. My will is his instrument. My mind is his instrument. And he is able, not me. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, comparing himself to the other, other, the other apostles. He says, I have worked, me, I have worked harder than any of them, yet it was not me, but the grace of God within me. He will receive the glory. Do I work? Yes. I can keep myself in the love of God because I know that the love of God will not suffer to let me go. The reason that I can go on striving toward conformity to the image of Christ and go on killing my sin and my passion for sin is because I know that he, is, he who is able to keep me from stumbling cannot fail to keep his promises to me. And that is what is at the heart of any Christian benediction. A reminder of what has been promised and the power and faithfulness of the one who has made the promise. What's that second promise that Jude makes? Christ promises that he will present you blameless before the presence of divine glory, not as a sinner, not even as you, but blameless. The presence of glory is, of course, referencing the face of God, but what does Yahweh say to Moses in Exodus 33 about his face? He says, no one, not even Moses, no one, See my face and live. The perfection of God destroys everything that does not perfectly reflect itself. It will obliterate it if it is not presented before him as perfect as he is. What does Jesus say? Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. If that is not what God sees, he will, he will burn it with an all-consuming fire. It cannot stay in his presence. The holiness of God will destroy anything and everything that does not share in its splendor. Even the angels have to shield their faces from the face of God. But if you are a Christian, you will not come just wandering into the throne room of God. You will not come barging into it. You will be ushered into it and presented before him clothed in the righteous garments of Jesus Christ with great joy not hiding your face like Moses and the angels not cowering like Isaiah but with joy why because you will be spotless that is what the Greek word for blameless here literally means spotless spotless and without blemish just like the lamb of God who took away your sins when the lamb that was upon the cross when the lamb was upon the cross God made him to look like you so that you could stand in his presence looking like him. 
you will not be consumed by the fire of God. Why? Because you are perfectly in Christ and presented to him by Christ. In conclusion, I hope you see here that there is no distance between our praise of God and his blessings to us. We were made to praise God, and we are never in a more blessed state than when the Spirit, through the revelation of God's immeasurable perfection, stirs our hearts to give joyful praise to our Savior and our God through Jesus Christ. I have a little book on benedictions. You know what's interesting about that book on benedictions? Almost every one of them is taken from a doxology. They're inseparable. When you praise God, you are blessed. When you are blessed, you are praising God. So be aware of any one, any false teacher who seeks to rob you of your joy by trying to convince you that you're glorifying God and being obedient to Him is somehow not to your advantage. It most certainly is to your advantage. For the call to contend for our faith, our confession of who God is and what He has done for us is no less than a call for us to contend for our joy. And that's our final exhortation here. Contend for truth. Contend for joy. Our Heavenly Father, you have given us immeasurable joy in the immeasurable worth of Jesus Christ that has been given to us as a free gift of your grace that we receive by faith and faith alone. Father, I pray for the edification of the faith of everyone in this room. And Father, if there is one who does not have faith, I pray that the gospel will cause to well up within that heart an insuppressible desire and love for the truth. For the saying is true and worthy of full acceptance that Christ came to save sinners. Father, would you do this for the sake of Jesus? It's in his name that we pray. Amen.